Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. If you hate golf and Donald Trump, and who doesn't, you'll love our interview about Trump and golf with legendary sports writer Robert Lipsight. Also later in the show, Paul Manafort is the weakest link in the chain of evidence leading to charges of obstruction of justice for Donald Trump and his inner circle. Bob Dreyfus will report. But first, white nationalists, neo-Confederates, and Donald Trump for that, we turn to Eric Foner. He's an award-winning historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction. He teaches American history at Columbia University, and he's a member of the editorial board of the nation. Eric Foner, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, let's start with the Confederate statue that was ostensibly the focus of these events in Charlottesville. Robert E. Lee on the University of Virginia campus, Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox in 1865. What can you tell us about these, this statue? Well, Robert E. Lee, of course, is a very prominent figure in Virginia history, Southern history, American history. But I think the key thing to remember about this statue and most of these statues is that they actually have very little to do with the Civil War. This statue was erected in 1924, I believe, which is 70 years almost after the end of the Civil War. It was erected at the height of Jim Crow, the height of the segregation, disenfranchisement, lynching era. Uh, by the way, Robert E. Lee, after the Civil War, refused to say a word uh, to uh, criticize those who lynched black people or used violence of other kinds against them. He opposed black suffrage. He thought of himself as a gentleman, which he probably was, but he certainly didn't think black people should have any rights. But be that as it may, you know, the statue was erected as a statement, like all these statues, fundamentally of who's in charge. You know, who's in charge in the society? The people who made yeah. the decision to put that up is a statement of the power structure in the society. You know, my feeling about it is not necessarily that all these statues ought to be taken down. I would like to see them erect another statue. Instead of taking down Lee, let's put up a statue right near him of, let us say, John M. Langston, a black member of Congress from Virginia in the 1880s, right after the end of Reconstruction. You don't see very many statues to black leaders of the Reconstruction or post-Reconstruction South in Virginia or anywhere else. That's because, as I say, these statues are to represent white supremacy, not just history with a capital H. So if we're going to talk about statues, I say let's have the 
statuary be fully representative of Southern history and Virginia history. And as I say, I wouldn't mind Lee being there if there was somebody else representing other aspects of Virginia history. But you don't see a lot about them uh, in Virginia. So a lot of these demonstrators in Charlottesville called themselves neo-Confederates. What, what exactly is the neo-Confederate movement today, and, and what's its connection to the President of the United States? The neo-Confederate movement has been around for a good while. They have websites, they have publications. Ostensibly, their aim is to uh, sort of commemorate and glorify the history of the Southern Confederacy. But as I say, what they really are about is white supremacy, or what is sometimes called white nationalism. They don't really have a tremendous interest in the Civil War. For example, they deny that slavery had anything much to do with the Civil War, which is not a position any reputable historian would take nowadays. But they, are, they use the Confederacy as a symbol of white supremacy, which they are trying to bolster uh, in this country. So they're reaching into history, but what they do is about the present. That's my point. It's not about the Civil War. It's about who should be ruling America right now. Is Donald Trump a neo-Confederate? Uh, quite honestly, uh, Donald Trump, I, I think to even say that is to dignify Donald Trump with having coherent ideas, which he clearly does not. I don't think he knows anything about the Confederacy or the Civil War, but he does know that these kinds of people are part of his political base. In his campaign, which played upon racism in numerous ways, he was, uh, you know, appealing to them. His, he's got a guy in the White House, Steve Bannon, and some others, Miller, who uh, reflect these points of view. What matters to Trump is, are you with him or against him, so to speak? And these folks are with him. And that's, uh, I think, one of the main reasons that he was so reluctant to say anything negative about them for three days after the tragedy that took place in uh, Charlottesville. But, to, but I don't think, uh, if you asked uh, Donald Trump several historical questions about the Confederacy, I doubt if he'd be able to answer them. Of course, Donald Trump's father was arrested at a Klan riot in Queens, New York, in 1927. Is that right? Well, the Klan uh, was very powerful in the North in the 20s. That's different from the Reconstruction Era Klan. Uh, no, racism is part of the DNA of Trump. Whether it has to do with the Confederacy or not, I don't know. But it, the, his father was also sued for not letting black people into the uh, housing developments he uh, created. Uh, Trump first came to prominence on political sort of questions when he demanded the death penalty for these four black young men who were accused and convicted and later exonerated of uh, assaulting a woman uh, jogger in Central Park. Trump, you know, identified with the um, birther, became the spokesman of the so-called birther movement that denied that Barack Obama was a citizen of the United States. So, you know, he certainly has played the racial card, as they say, very strongly, both in his political and in this family's uh, commercial uh, life. But he doesn't like black people. I'm sure Trump would say to you, though, in fact, I know he said this, yeah, yeah i got a lot of blacks friends. I'm sure he does. You know, he said, I, I knew Muhammad Ali, he once said. I was Muhammad Ali's best friend, which is probably an exaggeration. <laughs> probably. But, um, uh, even racism is probably too coherent a set of thoughts for Trump to actually uh, fully adhere to. But it seems to me there's nothing really new about neo-Confederate segregationists 
hooking up with a Republican president, I'm sure that the demonstrators in Charlottesville noticed that Obama was not a white Southerner, and you could go all the way back to Nixon's Southern strategy in 68 and 72, and before that to Goldwater in 64, who who voted against... No, this is, you know, Trump is in, in exaggerated form a very good expression of what has happened to the Republican Party in the last half century. And you're right, of course, Goldwater. You know, we forget that before that, and even to some extent after that for a while, there were many Republicans who were strong civil rights advocates, people like Jacob Javits, senator from New York State, Robert Taft, famous conservative Republican in the 40s, was a strong supporter of, of, of black rights. The Civil Rights Act of 64 would never have passed if, you know, Everett Durkin had not gotten some Republican votes for it in the Senate. This is the party of Lincoln, or at least was. But uh, the fact is, as you say, since Goldwater, since Nixon, since George Wallace, and then on after that, Republicans have uh, used Nixon's Southern strategy to try to appeal to whites who are resentful over the changes in race relations which came out of the civil rights revolution what is different about trump is they have, i don't believe there's ever been a overt white racist nationalist in the white house the overtness you know normally the uh, appeals to this white racism are done through code words you know yes. law and order and things like that but not quite as overtly as in Trump's campaign, where he campaigns, you know, all black people are living in hell holes and they're all violent criminals. And, you know, what do you have to lose right. by voting for Trump? Well, it's become pretty clear what they have to lose. They can lose the right to vote. <laughs> they can lose affirmative action. They can lose the notion that the federal government sees racism as a serious problem in the United States. So, yeah, Trump is an extreme version of what's been going on in the Republican Party for a good while. Well, one more question about the white nationalists and neo-Confederate demonstrators in, in Charlottesville. I noticed this seems like a small thing, but maybe there's something to it. They were not wearing the old-fashioned KKK white robes with pointed hoods. They were wearing khakis and polo shirts with the, their logo uh, on the pocket. What, what happened to the white robes and the hoods? Uh, well, I'm not a total expert on the attire of these neo-fascists, but um, I do think, I guess if you go around with white robes and hoods nowadays, uh, most people would probably be put off by that. Uh, we should remember, of course, that's the uniform of the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, when Trump Sr. was connected with it, apparently. Uh, in the Reconstruction era, when the Klan originated, uh, they didn't have it. They had disguises, but there was no uniform. You know, they weren't. The South was pretty poor. They couldn't all go out and buy uniforms. So they, basically, their wives made up any old kind of disguise they could. But in the twenties, they paraded in Washington and many other places, wearing their hoods and, and white robes and everything. Uh, yeah, but you don't do that anymore. But I think there is a subliminal message. These guys are dressed like preppies from the nineteen fifties. You know, uh -huh. uh, clean. They're clean cut, and they look like uh, they just came out of a prep school somewhere. And I think they are. When Trump says "Make America Great Again," when was it great, actually, according to him? And I think the answer is the fifties. There was economic prosperity, rising wages, but also African-Americans uh, and women were supposedly in their place and knew where their place was supposed to be. Uh, of course, the 
Montgomery bus boycott and other things happened in the 50s. But through their uh, clothing, they're they're identifying themselves with a certain moment in American history, uh, which Trump also tries to identify himself with, which again is the time when white people were in charge, white men, and other groups knew their place. And if we go back to that, America will be great again. <laughs> I think you do know a lot about the attire of uh, white nationalists and the Confederates. One, one last thing. I saw a, a provocative question uh, quoted in the New York Times. How are protesters tearing down Civil War st- statues any different from ISIS and the Taliban destroying historic relics and museums. I wonder if you have any thoughts yeah, about that. Yeah, I saw that, that posted. Uh, you know, first of all, nobody, I don't think, has identified the statue of Robert E. Lee as a world cultural heritage site, you know, <laughs> like those giant Buddhas that were destroyed by the uh, ISIS or the yeah. Taliban. Yeah. But I think... More to the point, this is my fear. I'm not in favor of tearing down every single statue of a Confederate. As I said, my preference would be to put up an equal number of statues of non-Confederates and anti-Confederates and rebel slaves. If you're going to have a rebel Robert E. Lee, let's have Matt Turner up there. And then these Reconstruction leaders. You think in Mississippi they have a statue of Blanche K. Bruce, the first African-American senator in U.S. history? Um, I don't think so. So uh, that's one thing. But the, the main point is tearing down statues is often a sign of regime change, as we call it. So remember, what was the first thing when American, that American troops did when they marched into Baghdad in 2003 in the Iraq War? They tore down the statue of Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Now, I don't remember a lot of people saying, oh, no, 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 we shouldn't do that. You know, this is destroying history. Saddam Hussein is part of the history. You may not like him, but nonetheless, this is history. No. We said, great, let's tear it down. Or in 91, with the fall of the Soviet Union, crowds marched to the KGB headquarters and tore down the statue of, I can't pronounce his name, but the founder of the KGB, Debrezhinska, whatever his name was, long Russian name. Uh, Nobody said, oh, they're um, interfering with history. Uh, The point is, when regimes change, the public presentation of history also changes. And so the proliferation or the the large numbers of Confederate statues that are around all over the South makes you wonder how much regime change there actually has been in this country since the Civil War. I'm not advocating tearing them all down, although there are some I would like to see go, like uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, to my mind, does not deserve to a statue a statue of and there are many of them statue of nathan bedford forrest is sort of like putting up a statue of timothy mcveigh mm. he was a homicidal lunatic uh, responsible for the death of hundreds of black soldiers after they surrendered he was one of the founders of the clan he was a notorious slave trader why should there be statues of a man like that uh, for young people to uh, admire and emulate But as I say, my main thing is if we're going to have history being presented to the public in this way, let's have it be comprehensive history, not what they've got now. Eric Foner. Eric, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. All right. Wonderful to talk to you, John. If you hate golf and Trump, and who doesn't, then you will love Robert Lipsight's report on Trump and golf. He's a legendary sports writer and columnist for the New York Times and the award-winning author of more than a dozen books on sports, fiction and nonfiction, many for young adults. He's also the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch and a contributor to The Nation. 
We reached him today at home on Shelter Island at the far end of Long Island in New York. Robert Lipsight, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Donald Trump plays golf, and golfers are key supporters of his, the country club Republicans. But you see evidence that he is alienating even the country club Republican golfers. Yeah, I think ultimately he will. There are, there are two golf courses, clubs, on Shelter Island. One is very much working class. The other is certainly, you know, in the at least the two percent, if not the one percent. I think there's a kind of a streak of conservatism through both of them that really has to do with rules, with the uh, the codification of games, of of how we purport to live our lives. And I must say, I I despise the game almost as much as I despise Trump. But the the heart of it is the idea that golf, of course, operates on the honor system, even though most of the presidents who played have cheated. But golf <laughs> does operate on, on, on the honor system. And the idea is that, you know, if if you hit a bad shot, you don't ignore it and do it over again. You take the penalty. I, I think that this is part of that kind of character that that golf is supposed to be a crucible of. Yes. But I, I, I think that when you have somebody like Trump who cheats, uh, who takes shots over again all the time, and then in, in probably the most grievous sin is he drove his golf cart onto the green, that, that kind of little patch of very meticulously cosseted grass with the hole in the middle. <laughs> and the whole idea of keeping the green pristine is because the good golfer, and I must say, uh, from all I've seen, uh, Trump is a good golfer. The good golfer is able to look at the green. It's called reading the green to kind of understand, you know, the curves and angles on the grass so that you can make your final putts. To drive his cart onto that is is really, I guess, like pissing on the Vatican wall. That really is an ultimate affront, a, a kind of violation of what is considered sacred in the sport. Golf is played at private clubs that have a history of excluding people of color and women. But you say there is more to golf than racism and sexism. There's also the environmental problems the golf course raises. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question that all that land that is really very carefully domesticated carries a lot of fertilizer. It's easy and liberal to say, you know, be great for affordable housing, which, of course, it would be. But there really is an advantage to open land, and that's um, that's called breathing. And I think some so much of that open land, that golf land, could be walking trails, could be park land, could be, you know, just open to people. As it is, it's uh, for very rich people. It's expensively kept in shape. And, of course, in, in the northern part of the country, it's really only available about half the year. And I've, I've read of golfers complaining of breathing problems and dizziness from all the chemicals that they put on, especially on the greens. Right, of course. 
And, you know, for a golf course to really be in top-notch condition, available for major tournaments and for uh, expensive members, uh, I, I think you do really need to pour in a lot of chemicals. You've got to, uh, got to keep it up. You've described the, the golf culture that Trump is part of as consisting of successful greed heads and wannabes. But, but what about the zen of golf? You know, a man alone with all his weaknesses facing the ball that lies still. Isn't that a profound test of character and self-knowledge? I think there are a lot of profound ways to test yourself and to learn about yourself. And I think thrashing a little white ball that can't hit you back <laughs> may not be quite at the top of the list, John. Okay. I, I think that I, I find something bizarre in this idea of, of golf as the hero's journey. I mean, come on. What it's basically there for, and, and by the way, on, on what hero's journey can you also eat smoke and and make hedge fund deals. <laughs> okay. um, I, I think that business and the applications of business are really one of the main functions of golf. For women uh, who have been unable to, to crack a lot of the C suites, is that they uh, you know they don't belong to clubs. Uh, they don't, in a sense, participate in, in what I call urinal society. I mean, I think that so much. <laughs> of the real business of business gets done. Two guys, you know, peeing together in the clubhouse <laughs> and one turns to the other and says, so well, what are you going to do about that new trucking deal? Uh -huh. And I think that's how a lot of business is taken care of, whether it's in the clubhouse, on the greens, in the bathrooms. And I, I think that it's that kind of access and uh, easy sociability, uh, which is very important to business. You say that there's a sort of a working-class golf course out there on Shelter Island. In, in my neighborhood in L.A., there are, there are several public courses. I near, live near one called Rancho Park, where you can play 18 holes for $35.50 on weekdays, $21 if you're a senior. Doesn't that make golf a, a game for the little guy? Yeah. Sure. There's no question about it that, that the little guy can play golf. He can't be too little because he does have to, he, he does need clubs. Yeah. And he probably needs the time, the, you know, the three, four hours it takes to go around the club. But yes, you're absolutely right. And most of the grief that I've taken is from my friends who are consider themselves working class golfers who say, you know, what about us? And I say, yeah, what about you? I think it's terrific that you play this little game, but you're not the ones who keep it going. And as a matter of fact, golf is fading as a sport. Really? Uh, fewer people are playing it. More golf clubs are failing than are being built. I don't think that the next generation has the, uh, the time or the inclination for this kind of leisurely pursuit. But I think also remember that these working class golfers are really buying into what Trump himself calls the aspirational aspect of golf. Yeah. There is a sense that golf steps you up in class. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Trump himself says that, you know, it shouldn't be too easy. 
<laughs> to play golf. You should have to work really hard and make a lot of money so you can really join a good club like one of mine uh, so that golf really means something. I think that, you know, there are, there are lots of, you know, I'm sure firemen and cops and uh, people who have stretches of free time who play golf. But again, I think that the pull of golf is really, you know, what you see on weekends on television in these great, vast, green Valhalla-looking clubs and in the idea of the rich golfers and the, the pro golfers who are, you know, a kind of emerging class of athlete in America, who, by the way, are, I think, just about, in, in, in my in my history, just about the only athletes who are listed not by, you know, batting averages or how many rings uh, they've won or, you know, most valuable player awards, by money earned. I think the money list is really the key to who are the top golfers. And I, I suspect that even though he, you know, hasn't won anything in ages, Tiger Woods is still at the top uh, as, as one of the world's leading clothing models. Well, let's get back to Donald Trump for a, a minute here. He's more than a golfer. Of course, he owns and operates uh, luxury golf courses and owns the clubs, and he employs lots of people at his uh, golf courses and golf clubs. Tell us about Trump as an owner and an employer of uh, golf courses and clubs. You know, anytime that he plays golf or talks about golf, he is, in a sense, promoting his brand. I mean, I don't think that anybody, I can't think of any politician in history who has done as well as he has in promoting his private businesses, you know, while he's purportedly doing taxpayer work. You know, it's, it's interesting that for a long time, he was beating Obama up about playing so much golf and, uh, you know, not attending to business. And, and, you know, in his first six months on the job, he has beaten Obama. I mean, I, I, he's, he's destroyed Obama's legacy as a golf player. <laughs> uh, but I, I think the only president that we know about who used to sneak off to play golf anywhere near as much as Trump was JFK. Kennedy was supposedly a very good golfer, bad back at all, and he would slip away a lot to play golf. And it was kept quiet because he, in turn, had made a big deal about Ike Eisenhower being the, quote, duffer in chief <laughs> and made it very clear that when he was president, he was not going to be you know, wasting time being a putz. But <laughs> I think that what happened with JFK was because he also had a real reputation, as we know, for, uh, you know, for playing around. And so after, after a while, when there were so many unexplained absences, his, his press guy, Pierre Salinger, decided that they had to make it clear that he was sneaking off to play a round of golf, not to play around. <laughs> he wasn't sneaking off, you know, to have a, a tryst. Last question. You say to understand golf is to understand Trump. Please explain. Well, there are aspects of there are aspects of golf that play really into Trump's character. One way 
to do better in golf is cutting corners. In this case, the, you know, if if you if you take a bad shot and want to take it over again, and they let you do it, your partners let you do it. It's it's called taking a mulligan. Actually, Clinton did it so often it became called taking a billigan. <laughs> but but I, I think that the idea of this lazy man sport. I mean, it is a lazy man sport. I mean, he he can't even walk around. He has to go in a cart. Yeah. I mean, it would be better uh, better exercise if he actually walked or even if he carried his clubs. But, you know, we can't really get into that because except for Chris Christie, I don't think that body shaming is allowed in America anymore. That's certainly not in the, certainly not among nation readers. So right. But in any case, so back back to golf. So it's it's a plutocratic sport. Played at its highest level, it's with extremely expensive equipment. Uh, it's in places that cost enormous amounts of money to join. I mean, his Mar-a-Lago club when he became president, the uh, the membership uh, initiation fee jumped from a hundred grand to two hundred mm. grand. Again. The, the perk of a president's golf club. Look who you could schmooze with, or said that you were schmoozing with. The, the joke always was that golfers and fishermen were the biggest liars in explaining how good they were. And the only difference was that fishermen had to show some evidence. <laughs> they had a fish. <laughs> golfers do not. Everybody, as they get older, become better golfers. Uh, at least in their stories. So you lie, you cheat, you socialize. It's a sport that's not really a sport. It's a sport that's traditionally been exclusionary, that's been racist, that's been sexist, and is befouling the environment with chemicals. So how much more do you want to you know, <laughs> uh, compare Trump and golf? Robert Lipsight, the legendary sports writer. Read him at thenation.com and Tom Dispatch. Bob, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That was fun. When the FBI raided the home of Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, they targeted the man who may be the most likely to bring down Donald Trump and his whole family. For comment, we turn once again to Bob Dreyfus. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. He's written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, Salon, and he's a regular here and at thenation.com reporting on the Russia investigations. Bob Dreyfus, welcome back. My pleasure. Thanks. Well, Trump was asked to comment on that FBI raid on Paul Manafort's house. What what was it that he said? <laughs> well, um, you know, I I don't think uh, Trump is sure whether he should be nice to Manafort, who, after all, is a, a longtime associate and formerly his campaign manager, or whether he should be worried that Manafort might double cross him. But but he he said he said I, I always thought that Paul was a very decent man and he makes a lot of money all over the place and I don't know where it all comes from, um, and and he said you know it was pretty tough that they you know knocked down his doors and his family might have been there and he, he was sort of 
being somewhat neutral, but saying, you know, he's a, he's a, a decent guy. Um, he also said it must have been a signal of some kind. And uh, as I say in my nation piece, it, it certainly was a signal. It was a signal that Mueller's investigation is taking off the kid gloves, that it's starting to to really uh, get serious now. And, and so I think anybody who's involved in uh, any aspect of this from the Trump side it ought to be worried that they could be the next uh, target of a of a raid. I mean, um, Trump's lawyer, too, uh, a guy named John Dowd, um, actually compared the raid on Manafort's home, which took place in July, by the way, as something you'd see in Russia. And I thought that was pretty funny, um, yes. beyond irony, because yes. here's a Here's a lawyer for Trump comparing what the FBI does, uh, which obviously is sanctioned by our Constitution, approved by a judge, carried out by sworn officers of the law uh, in pursuit of possible criminal activity all above board to the kind of thuggery that happens in Russia. I, 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 I found that a delicious a delicious yes. kind of irony, you yes. know. So, well, Manafort um, Manafort had said that he was cooperating with Special Counsel Robert Mueller, providing everything they requested. So, why do you think armed FBI agents showed up at his house at dawn with a search warrant? Well, it seems pretty clear that they went to his house and seized all these documents and records and computers and whatever because they didn't believe that he was cooperating. If you if you think somebody's cooperating, um, you're not going to raid their home. You know, now the question is, if they found evidence of, of any crimes, and he's got such a tangled history that it seems unlikely they won't find something, if, if not the smoking gun that we're all looking for on collusion with Russia. Um, but if they find evidence of a crime, they can threaten to prosecute him. They can file criminal charges. They can ask him to turn state's witness and, and cooperate with the investigation. Uh, Manafort's lawyer so far said he is not yet what they call a cooperating witness, just that he's cooperating with the investigation. But that remains to be seen. And, you know, Trump may be a little suspicious or worried that Manafort could turn against him. You, you may have seen that last... Uh, week or maybe it's two weeks ago now. The the virtual day that the post, the exact day that the post revealed that raid, the National Enquirer came out with some sleazy story that Manafort was having an affair hmm. uh, with a woman half his age. They had exclamation points in their headline. Um, uh, it wasn't even a new story, but the fact that they splashed it across their pages. Um, is significant because the National Enquirer is part of Team Team Trump. Yeah. Um, it, it endorsed him. Its top executives are Trump supporters. Um, they backed him strongly in the campaign and, and spent a lot of ink last year um, attacking Hillary Clinton. So, I, I mean, I can't prove that, but it's not beyond belief that the same paper that said Ted Cruz's father tried to kill Kennedy or whatever uh, when Trump was campaigning against Cruz at the end of the primary season, 
that that same paper paper might go after Manafort as a warning. You know, yeah. look, we can we can uh, we can destroy you. Yeah. Well, a little background here. Who was Paul Manafort before he became campaign manager for uh, Donald Trump in the presidential campaign? Trump called him a very decent man. Is that the way you would describe him? Well, I mean, I don't know him personally, and I, he may be nice to his uh, family. I'm not totally sure of that because his daughters seem to have turned against him. We can talk about that later. But he's 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 been in politics for about 40 years. One sign maybe that he wasn't such a nice guy is that he seemed to represent a, a, an unseemly string of dictators over the years, from uh, Mobutu of Zaire to Siad Bar of Somalia. He represented Ferdinand Marcos of the, the Philippines. He, he had a whole string, uh, six or eight of these people who he represented when he was part of that famous law firm, lobbying firm, called Black Manafort Stone and Kelly. Stone, um, Stone. That's the name is familiar. <laughs> yes, well, the always talkative troublemaker Roger Stone was Paul Manafort's partner at that law firm, or hmm. that lobbying firm. Stone, of course, is the guy who admits that he was in touch with Leak Central, Guccifer 2.0, during the the Russian hack and leak thing last summer, um, that he was in touch with WikiLeaks. He had obvious advance warning that the Podesta, John Podesta leaks were coming because he announced them before anybody knew that he'd been even hacked last, uh, I guess that was in October, just before the election. So... Stone himself is certainly somebody who's uh, also going to come under uh, scrutiny by Robert Mueller, the special yeah. counsel. Now you say um, you say that uh, that Manafort has in the past worked for Mobutu and Marcos and uh, Savimbi. That may be reprehensible. I don't think it was illegal. What exactly is his potential criminal problem, and isn't there some uh, money laundering uh, uh, issue here? Well, you know, it seems like everybody in Trump world, from Jared Kushner to Trump's sons and Trump himself and Manafort and lots of others, because they're so mixed up in real estate deals that have come under question, I think money laundering is going to be a key a key issue. But the, the really interesting thing about Manafort, which, you know, is not a secret it has been known for quite a while now is that he, for just about 10 years, represented the pro-Russian faction in Ukraine. Yeah. He rec- represented the so-called Party of Regions, which was run by a guy named Viktor Yanukovych. He started working for him back in 2004-05 after an election that uh, Yanukovych uh, lost. Um, he worked with him until he won election. And then, of course, after Yanukovych was the guy who was toppled in the big protest explosion in uh, 2014 that caused him to flee the country and go to Russia, which led to this Ukrainian civil war that's going on. And all throughout that, uh, Manafort was involved in uh, supporting this Ukrainian faction, the pro-Russian faction, and apparently pocketing large sums of 
money, many millions of dollars. We don't know the whole extent of it, but um, it's been pretty widely acknowledged. Uh, in fact, I think he just rejiggered his financial disclosure forms recently to um, um, account for the fact that he was paid pretty handsomely um, by these uh, by these Ukrainians. Uh, Mueller has the, the FBI has been looking into not Mueller, but the FBI three years ago started an investigation into Manafort's activities, um, whether he was improperly moving uh, money around. Um, so that, that predates the the whole Trump campaign. That was before Trump was even running. Um, and by the way, Trump knew all this when, when he brought him on yeah. in 2016 to help run the campaign. So, I mean, there's a lot of fertile material for you know, the investigators to look at when, when they're looking at Manafort. Bob Dreyfus, he writes a weekly column for The Nation reporting on the Russia investigations. This week's report is titled, Why Paul Manafort Could Bring Down the Whole Trump Family. You can read it at thenation.com. Bob, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, it's my pleasure. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.